0: i
1: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex As we approach the local elections, parties are gearing up for what is seen as a dry run for next year's general election. Negative ads, hotly debated in studios, leaflets, good and bad disseminated across social media, and fears about online targeting, data harvesting, bots and astroturfing are front and centre again. But have we learned what we needed to learn from the Brexit campaign onwards? Have we made the changes necessary? My guest today is a leading campaigner on digital democracy reform and platform regulation, the founder and director of Fair Vote UK, which published Evidence of Vote Leaves Lawbreaking, and the author of The Little Black Book of Data and Democracy. He has also worked on several real election campaigns, including the nail-biter 2020 US Georgia Senate runoff. Welcome to the bunker, Kyle Taylor.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. And that was a fantastic introduction that perfectly explains the situation. So, well done.
1: Good. Okay, Kyle, let's start with creating a sort of context, first of all, by talking about online ads in general rather than political ones. So advertisers are forecast to spend three quarters of a trillion dollars in digital advertising this year, which now makes up majority of advertising spend globally, 55%. So presumably, there is now a science to it with vaguely forecastable results. What is the formula of what works and what doesn't? And can you give us an example?
0: that's where we are, you know, as you, as you said, you know, it's, it's a really interesting situation because I think when social media emerged at first, what we thought it was going to be was this sort of public town square where we all came together and everyone shared an experience together. But actually the reason that it's been so successful for advertising is because it's been the exact opposite. I mean, social media is the perfect place To find someone to show something that you're not going to show anybody else, right? (laughs) The craziest thing for me when I think about social media is when you think about every single news feed for every single person is different. Nobody is seeing the same news feed. We're talking about personalized experiences to a degree that we've never seen before. And when it comes to advertising, it's just a fantastic opportunity for advertisers, right? So they're able to hone a message and reach a person or a group of people with something that isn't just specific to them, but hopefully doesn't offend anyone else, right? Because no one else is going to see it. So th- and and when you think about success, the real success comes from virality. So I was I was thinking about this question. You know what what has been the most successful digital advertising experience? It's the ALS Water Bucket Challenge, without question. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. You remember it without me even explaining anything else about yeah. it. Right. So it's highly engaging. It's uh, highly personal. And it's highly shareable because ultimately that's what people want from social media. They want something that isn't just about saying, you know, I was here, I was there, I did this thing, I did that thing, but, but more about like I am in the know. Right? I am I'm following the trends I'm on top of the trends and I think that when you look at non-political digital advertising that's what you see and we have a really good example recently of what happens when the targeting is off so with the, the Bud Light campaign so Bud light uh, in the United States they sent personalized beers to a very prominent activist and influencer in the trans community and that person, did what they were told to do from the company, which was create a social media share post it. about this, yeah. share it, because that's what they want, right? <laughs> but unfortunately for the brand, that went viral. It, it left social media in a way that created this equal and opposite reaction of people saying, if this brand is doing this type of advertising, that I don't want to consume this brand anymore you know in in a way that you're sort of you're thinking well who cares if this person is doing this thing why does that mean that you you can't do this thing so we're we're sort of a, i like i like to think of it we're at the the end and almost the the cul-de-sac the reverberation of this where it's no longer about doing something for a community to get their followers to follow it. We're at the point where if they do it, and if their followers do it, then there's a whole nother community that's going to not want to do it simply because the other community did it.
1: Right. So based on what you were saying, the strength is that social media can divide us into very small units, even personalized ones. But beware when there's leakage, because the unit next door may not like what you're seeing. Absolutely. Okay. So zooming in on political digital campaigning, more particularly, do those tenets largely hold true? Or are political ads a slightly different category? Because there, I would think, you want to advertise to the wider world what your values are because you may be attracting people from boxes that would not ordinarily vote for you to come into your box, as it were.
0: The the thing about political advertising is you do want more people to vote for you, but you only want to tell each box the thing that they want to hear right? So it's not that you're putting out a message to appeal to more people. It's that you're breaking people into smaller groups to send a message that only appeals to that group. Mm -hmm. And if we look backwards, we look at the Brexit campaign, or I also worked on the 2016 campaign in the United States with Hillary for America and the coordinated campaign in North Carolina. And because what was happening online wasn't a public conversation, no one was tuning in to what was happening in these campaigns, right? So when we look back at the Brexit campaign, we see digital ads that said, "This." I mean, that doesn't suggest, I mean, these are ads that the the Leave campaign was running that said, Syria borders Turkey. Turkey is going to enter the EU. Then all 100 million people in Turkey can come to the UK. Yeah. Right? That's not trying to appeal to more people or bring people into the fray. That's trying to target a very specific group of people. And at the time, because nobody was was raising, is this questionable more broadly, it was working, right? I mean, these are the most mm. successful ad campaigns in the last decade. I mean, these are this is the point where we saw that truth and reality is disconnecting from speaking to people yeah. because of yeah. micro-targeting. So it's not, it's not in its own space entirely, but its impact is, of course, much greater. So I always like to say, like, you know, can we agree that selling soap or selling shoes is different than determining the outcome of the next democratic election and the future of our country? Like, shouldn't mm-hmm. these sort of be diff-
1: more different than we're allowing yeah. them to be? Well, the rules for them certainly should be. Um, because, you know, I, I also did some work on the Brexit referendum online advertising, and some of the stuff that went on was, was quite questionable, really, mm. especially around this idea of gateway ads that didn't really tell you what they were about until you had clicked through mm. to somewhere where your data had already been captured, right? So, So... If your Facebook has a history of, uh, let's say, animal advocacy, you would suddenly be shown a, a, a photo of you know, a baby polar bear cub being clubbed to death by Jean-Claude Juncker. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but actually not by much. <laughs> and then you'd click on it, and suddenly there you were in the sort of vote-leave environment. So h- have we done anything? since then, to regulate that space? Nothing. nothing. We have done absolutely <laughs>
0: nothing. It, it's it's actually, so I I can tell you, you know, so Fair Vote UK was born out of, as you said, the Vote Leave scandal, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And I was in a place where I thought when this stuff came out, there would be emergency sessions of parliament because our democracy is being undermined. We have to take immediate action. We are, what, it was um, March 2018, so we're just over five years from the revelations becoming public, and not a single law or regulation has been passed in the UK that is now enacted. So we have in the elections bill the only thing, that, which is the, the introduction of imprints on digital ads, but only paid digital ads, and the qualifier is if, as long as it's reasonably practicable to put an imprint in the ad. So there's a million ways to get out of putting even an imprint in a paid ad, right? You look at the online safety bill. This bill has become just one more piece of the current government's culture war arsenal. To say that we are the party of free speech. And so there is no reason why we would in any way use this bill to try and make the online world safer for marginalized people, for groups who are just historically discriminated against, or to make our elections safer. That, you know, it it's 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 absolutely surreal to think that. For me, I always think, you know, it's not just that we're not doing anything, it's that we don't seem to know the difference anymore of what, should we, what we should act on and what we shouldn't, right? So yeah. the idea that this whole free speech argument is that it needs to be absolute. Anyone can say anything. But what we know is groups and people who've historically had more power in society are defining the rules in society now. So they're going to make rules that ensure that what they want to say, you their ex- their exercise of speech is protected. But sometimes people using their free speech actually stifles other people's free speech. And there's no consideration of that or the impact of that. So if you're using your speech to say that actually, you know, gay people should not be able to get married or people without an ID shouldn't be able to vote because they're probably trying to cheat the system. That's very different than saying all people deserve equality. But our inability to actually identify the difference anymore is the bigger problem. And the acute issue is, of course, that all of this is happening on completely privately owned platforms that are only built to maximize profit. How is maximizing profit good for democracy or facilitating speech?
1: Is there a danger of overstating the case i was I was reading a, a few days ago something Brianna Wu wrote for listeners. This is a game developer that was pretty much at the center of the gamergate. Thing and and she wrote after an unsuccessful congressional campaign that technology is a field that fetishizes disruption. We place an almost irrational trust in new tools. That's fine for developing games, but it was a failing playbook for politics. So, is there a danger that because we live digital lives, you know, as activists, as journalists, we exist mm. in social media, that we overstate the impact on Joe blogs out there. I'm in the
0: place where I say absolutely not. You know, people often say, oh, well, you know, social media didn't cause the resurgence of white supremacy. Social media didn't cause blah, blah, blah. What I always think is, yes, it didn't cause it, but it's the rocket fuel for it. Mm. And to suggest that we have any communication tool that exists that has ever existed that is in any way relatable to social media is outrageous right you know we're looking at a a system where any individual person can publish something online that's visible to any person on earth right and and sitting behind an incentive model that is only designed to maximize profit so this system isn't looking at, like, what's true, what's healthy, you know, how do we facilitate a public sphere? It's just looking at how do we make the most people see this, like, share, comment on it, and then see ads because we shared it, right? That, there is no way to understate what that model does for society. And
1: we will do that at our peril. This is a good a good point to approach the bin fire that is Elon Musk. I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but we just have to in this context. We must, it it must, we must. Um, How much of a difference will it make, do you think, in the upcoming, let's say, US election, because UK elections are probably small potatoes?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is, I, I would have argued before Musk that even, so, you know, Facebook has three point just over 3 billion monthly active users. Almost half of the earth is on Facebook. Twitter was hovering around 300, 330 million, so much smaller. But the people who were on Twitter were journalists, activists, and politicians. So in terms of a public sphere that was influential in creating change, quite significant, even in the UK anywhere. It sets the agenda, doesn't it? It is the agenda setting platform probably uh, extremely influential and what's well, it it's so funny that you bring up I mean it is a it is a bin fire, right I mean you, you, I don't know if if you've if anyone you know has been using the platform the last few days just since they changed the blue tick situation. so it went from Twitter verifying that, legitimate people were legitimate people, to Twitter verifying that any person who pays a small amount of money every month is therefore verified
1: as a, a, a legitimate human. And even a specific human over the actual human that doesn't pay the $8, right? And then the blue ticks were given back to some people, and then some gold ticks were given to other people, and some gray ticks. I mean, it's a myth. But It's a a mess.
0: So, okay, so we look at the 2024 U.S. election, right? Like, it was clear early on what Musk was trying to do was just court Donald Trump back onto the platform because, surprise, surprise, Donald Trump is profitable, right? 74 million people follow him, and because of the stuff he starts and spreads, people stay on the platform longer, Twitter sells more ads. But it's a huge risk when you not only... Delegitimize the space by allowing one person to be king of the most influential digital public space that exists. But that one person clearly has his own agenda. Mm-hmm. Right. This isn't a this isn't a public sphere. Let's stop pretending. Right. A public sphere would be owned by everyone who participates. There would be equal access. We, we would see a space that was built to facilitate democratic exchange and dialogue. What we have is a completely monopolized for profit space that in no way is attempting to share Legitimate information. And so, and we have to remember as well, all, most of these tech companies, obviously Twitter included, are US based companies. They are deeply invested in US elections because the outcome of those elections determines that they're going to get regulated right? The outcome of those elections determines what their profit margins might be. And so as long as we pretend they don't have an agenda, it's just a fool's errand, right? Obviously, Musk has a goal for the 2024 election in the same way that Zuckerberg does and did in 2020. And it is to deliver an outcome that is most favorable for them as a company. Can we talk a
1: little bit just in the context of UK news at the moment, can we talk a little bit attack ads? So Labour has come in for heavy criticism for doing, in my mind, you may disagree, the same thing that has been done to them for decades, really. And yet conventional wisdom is that attack ads work right? But has this been tested in an online environment? Or are we importing you know, notions of what works and what doesn't from the analog world? It absolutely translates.
0: Look, negative ads work. If you need any evidence, the person who ran the most, spent the most money on negative ads in political history is Barack Obama, who we think back on as the candidate of hope and change. Nobody spent more money on negative ads than Barack Obama. And as somebody who worked in political consulting and campaigning for years and years and years, absolutely negative ads are important and they work. The thing about the recent labor ad is the sort of like disconnect between digital and political strategy. And, you know, I'm not in their campaign HQ. I don't know what data they're looking at, but all I can think from the last 13 years is we're looking at a government where the frame of this government is corruption, lies, etc. right? So if you're the opposition and you're trying to run on something different, then your whole thing is we're above this. All that ad did was say that they're just the same. They're the same as everybody else. And it's also like a very misleading ad He became he became an MP in 2015. Like it doesn't even follow suit, right? So, and the problem with negative ads, the problem with that ad as a negative ad is that the kernel of truth isn't strong enough to justify everything else about it, right? Like as if there isn't 50 other things you could do a negative ad about for this government, right? But you choose to suggest that the current prime minister is a fan of pedophiles. I mean, it's outrageous.
1: (laughs) Nobody's going to believe it. And yet you, you highlighted that the campaign that spent the most money on negative ads was Obama's. And the most oft-quoted aphorism that came out of that election campaign was when they go low, we go high. Mm.
0: Mm. So, exactly.
1: So there's a way of doing it, obviously, that leaves the candidate squeaky clean. In some strange way, right? It has to be grounded in truth
0: for the voter. And this is the whole thing. It's audience, political ads must be audience driven. What does the audience already believe? So in political ads, we always talk about facts versus frames, right? Voters will reject facts before they reject frames. So a frame would be the Tories are good at managing the economy, right? People just sort of think that that's true. Yeah. or The Tories are strong on defense, right? And if you give them a fact that contradicts that frame, they're likely to reject the fact before they reject the frame.
1: Can I just say, as a matter of fact, I was just reading something on sort of closed circuits and echo chambers that suggested that it will actually reinforce the frame, being presented with a fact that basically contradicts what you already believe will in most cases make that belief stronger.
0: That's 100% true, and social media has made that worse. And the reason is because what's happened in the social media age is that we are being flooded with so much information that we have less and less time to consider each piece of information. So if you think about our brains as a giant filing cabinet, all new information, we're trying to figure out what what file it goes in. Where do I file that? Is that, you know, seven, row three, whatever. So the more information you flood with people, the less they consider each piece. And actually, what they're trying to do is actually find information that reinforces something they already believe, and at, so, as you just said, if you present them with something that is the opposite of what they believe, they actually file that away as a reinforcement of the thing they did believe. Because oh, there is more more people contradicting me. More people contr- that must mean what I think is right. Yeah, you know, it, because social media is built on ego. It's built on you know dopamine hits. It's it's built on sort of a a psychological manipulation that streamlines our thinking and makes us incapable of broader consideration or rational thought, not by choice, literally by design. We don't have the time.
1: I'm scrolling through too much stuff. So actually, what becomes the most important factor, I think, is who is uh, giving us that information, right? If it's someone that we consider on our side, on our tribe, then we're much more likely to just buy what they say without looking into it.
0: Yes. Do I already trust this person? Then
1: whatever they tell me, I believe. That's it. Okay. So to to finish, you will presumably be looking at what goes on around the local election Mm. coming up. Uh, with a view to taking some lessons towards the general election next year. So what do you think are the big dangers going forward? What what will you be looking out for? You know, so
0: what's interesting with the locals is it's been pretty quiet in the digital space. Mm -hmm. I think relative to, to what we've seen historically, I think the biggest thing to be looking at in the locals is the impact of the government's photo ID Requirements to vote. There was a story on Thursday that the Conservative Party was actually putting out leaflets saying that you don't need ID to vote. And they couldn't actually say how many of these leaflets and in how many places they were being distributed. But you can assume if something's happening offline, it's happening online, either paid or organic. And so I think the the big play, and if, if you look at twenty the, the, the reverberations of 2020 and 24 in the U.S. presidential, the big play is to suppress future votes. So what I'm looking at in the locals is to see how social media is used to suppress people and their votes. Um, and I think that will give us a key indicator of what we should look for in the general, because the most important thing about these these bits of legislation to suppress votes is to use them as gaslights for future elections. So, Oh, did you see how many people tried to vote without ID that we suddenly introduced? This is why we have to secure our elections. And maybe we shouldn't have an election, you know, and we have elections until we don't, we have democracy until we don't. And taking it, any of these things for granted, especially in the digital age, especially with social media is, is, you know, a fool's errand. Like we cannot do that, and we have to remember these companies are owned by bajillionaires trying to make more money, and that is not compatible with our democracy. So be aware, be conscious, and be really, really considerate in how you experience and receive information in the digital age. Mm.
1: Yes, as as uh, Rick Stengel told me on this podcast mandela's biographer Uh, democracy is not a self-running machine it needs shoulders to the wheel absolutely kyle taylor thank you so much for making this really complicated subject plain and accessible for a little old me thank you (laughs) i hope so thanks so much alex Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of US Vice President Adelaide Stevenson, which seems strangely relevant in the age of Facebook, as they were in 1896. The hardest thing about any political campaign is how to win without proving that you are unworthy of winning. This is Alex Andreu in The Bunker saying over and out.
0: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. And our group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters
1: production.